Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome everyone again to another in our series of interviews with the experts. I'm Malcolm Bell. And today we're going to be talking about uh, the endovascular repair of thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysms. And my guest today is Dr. Bernardo Mendez, who's a consultant in uh, vascular surgery and endovascular surgery here at Mayo Clinic Rochester. He's also an associate professor of surgery and is the associate program director for their uh, fellowship training uh, program and residency. So Bernardo, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Thank you very much, Dr. Bell. Thank you for the opportunity to be here and for the invitation. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah, so maybe we'll just uh, start with just a general question, perhaps maybe just give our listeners a sense of how much endovascular repair of these aneurysms has taken over from open repair in the last you know, one to two uh, decades. Certainly, I would say that this is really something that is something that continues to evolve, but it has been really the primary modality of treatment for particularly for thoracoabdominal aortic aneurysms here at Mayo Clinic and in many of the leading institutions in the country, and even more substantially, I would say, outside of the United States. For instance, in European countries or in South America, most of these aneurysms are repaired endovascularly. As you know, we the endovascular revolution for aortic aneurysm treatment started in the inferior aorta, then progressed to the thoracic aorta, that's in the 1990s, early 2000s, and it's really taking over the paravisceral segment of the aorta and including the thoracoabdominal aorta over the last 15 years, and now finally reaching the what we call the final frontier, which is obviously the aortic arch. So I would say that here at Mayo Clinic, probably about 80% of the aneurysms that we fix currently are performed endovascularly, and that including all types of aneurysms from the subclavian artery to the, to the common iliac arteries. So there's clearly been lots of advances, and, and, and maybe you Perhaps you just give us a sense of what have been those advances that have made this possible to, uh, you know, I mean, almost replace open repair uh, in, in these. And, and maybe as you uh, answer that, maybe just make a distinction, if needed, between elective versus emergency repair. Absolutely. That's a, that is a great question. I would say that the advances, and this is one of the very, one of the very exciting points of being part of this practice is that we... We not only see, but we participate in the evolution of the techniques, the understanding of how these patients do, what is the best repair for them, and everything that comes with it. But I would say that the majority of our advances over the last 15 to 20 years, thanks to several of our pioneers, uh, include advances in preoperative imaging and the way that we plan these procedures, and I will develop on that in a second. Intraoperative techniques, of course, as we continue to learn how to do these operations, they are becoming more and more streamlined, more and more straightforward, quicker, faster, and therefore translating into better outcomes. And imaging technology perioperatively, meaning the type of imaging that we have access to in the operating room has changed completely how we do it and the protocols for postoperative care. So I would say going back in preoperative imaging and planning, we now have different options for devices, whereas in the past, we kind of had to make it up the way that we would incorporate these visceral vessels. 
Nowadays, we know that we can use fenestrations, branches, which are different ways of incorporating those visceral vessels. And we know that certain anatomies, and I don't think we need to go into a comprehensive description of which anatomies benefit from which device yeah. designs, but there we know that certain anatomies benefit more from a fenestrated stent graft, whereas other ones will benefit more from a branch stent graft. So, so maybe just before you go on, because some of our listeners may not be uh, familiar with some of these terms. So when you talk about fenestrated uh, grafts, uh, and obviously we're, we're talking about protecting side branches, but right. can you maybe sort of make that distinction between the fenestrated and these uh, branch uh, stents? Absolutely. So we have to think about if you have a repair that is incorporating from the thoracic aorta and into the abdominal aorta. So think about a, a thoracic stent graft, a T-bar graft. It's basically a tube with a metal structure, which is the stent and the graft, which is the fabric structure that will, that will cover effectively that aneurysm. Same thing for an inferior E-bar stent graft, except it's a bifurcated device that, like I tell my patients, looks like a pair of pins. If you think about a toracoabdominal repair in which you have to start up in the chest and go across the paravisceral segment, you have to incorporate those visceral vessels into the repair in a way that the blood will flow inside these stents and stent grafts and no longer flow in the aneurysm unless there are endoleaks, of course. But the objective is for the blood to flow only inside these stent grafts, including the visceral vessels. So to incorporate these visceral vessels, originally it all started with fenestrations, which are basically small holes in the graft that are reinforced by a metal ring. In general, there are different designs on that, but it's reinforced with a metal ring. And that can be either custom-made, manufacture, patient-specific by an industry manufacturer, meaning it can be performed, done by Cook Medical in Australia. They will analyze the anatomy that you send to them. You will make the measurements and they will make the stand for you or you can actually make a device. You can do what we call physician-modified stent grafting in which you make those fenestrations and reinforce with a metal ring. Uh, those are ideal for patients that have, let's say, a parallel aorta at the level of the paravisceral segment, more for juxtarenals or pararenal aneurysms in which you don't have a very wide aneurysm gap at the level of the visceral vessels. Branches are essentially little cups that are sewn into the main stent graft. Again, they can be custom-made and patient-specific manufactured devices, but can also be devices that are made by the surgeon or physician-modified stent grafts. Or there is yet another category, which are called the off-the-shelf stent grafts, which would be a quote-unquote one-size-fits-all type of graft. They have four branches that are standardized based on a relative predictability of the anatomy of these patients. The branches are usually, with few exceptions, they are usually downgoing in these branch devices, and they have something between 16 and 18 millimeters in length. And the objective is that you are going to put a stand that will anchor in this branch instead of anchoring in that reinforced fenestration and go into your visceral vessels that you are trying to incorporate on the repair. And these are all, this is all technology, again, that has been developed over the last 15 to 20 years and continues to evolve and progress. So certainly that is one of the main contributors to this being more and more utilized and our outcomes improving. And you, and you emphasize the importance of uh, imaging in your uh, pre-procedure and, and planning. And, and I don't think we need to go into the details of that, but <clears throat> obviously that plays a, a major role here and uh, in terms of sizing and, and your technique. 
Is there a distinction between those patients who have thoracoabdominal aneurysms that are degenerative uh, versus syndromic or genetically mediated? Uh, endovascular repair is still useful in, in the non-degenerative uh, population or not? That's an excellent question and also something that is becoming more and more fluid over the last few years. I would say that, I would say as a general guideline, we still recommend that patients with connective tissue disorders genetically trigger the aortic diseases as a, as a better term, like you mentioned, such as Lois Dietz, Ehlers, Danlos, Marfans, Octa 2 mutation, et cetera. Those patients in general are still better served with an open repair. However, there are exceptions that uh, we have been slowly venturing into, um, into these exceptions with endovascular techniques. The exceptions are in patients who have primarily a prosthetic proximal landing zone, such as a previous elephant trunk graft or a frozen elephant trunk graft or a Marfan's patient who had a thoracic, open thoracic aneurysm repair, has a dacron graft in the thoracic aorta and now has a degeneration of the paravisceral segment of the aorta. Those are the patients that would be primarily, that would primarily benefit from an endovascular solution because the risk of retrograde dissection, which will be the main concern for a patient who has a native thoracic or thoracobdominal or arch aorta, that risk is, is much decreased in general or, or eliminated if there is significant coverage of that aorta by previous graft. We understand that we have to use different techniques, different wires, different wire manipulation principles when we're dealing with these patients. Access is a big issue as well. Most of these patients are going to end up having a surgical access instead of a percutaneous access. The experience is still very limited. Probably here at Mayo Clinic, we have treated, I would say by now, something between five and 10 patients with our combined experience, my predecessor, Dr. Rodrich and myself, five to 10 patients that we performed a fenestrated or branched repair in a patient with a connective tissue disorder. Uh, all of them within these exceptions that I mentioned. And probably the global experience is in the one to 200 cases at the most. We know that they will have more complications. They will have more target vessel related endoleaks. But for those patients in which you are trying to avoid second, third, fourth time redo operation, as long as you have an anatomy that is compatible, like I mentioned, it is acceptable, although that is not the gold standard. So I am not promoting that, but I am saying that, yes, there will be an increasing role for that. So let's get back to the uh, maybe the bigger population, those who have degenerative uh, disease and uh, undergoing uh, repair. I, I'm assuming that uh, today we would accept that the, the morbidity and mortality uh, associated with those procedures is uh, an improvement on, on that that we've seen in the open repairs. And with that in mind, what's the durability then of, of these uh, the, the devices, just in terms of uh, you know, long-term outcome, uh, what late complications? We, I don't think we need to go into all the detail of those complications, but what, what's the frequency uh, that we see those? Absolutely. You're touching on the, really, this is the key point about the, um, it is the key point about the comparison between open and endovascular repair of essentially any aneurysm. I would say that without a doubt, your first comment of decreasing the perioperative morbidity and mortality has been accomplished with endovascular repair. In the right hands, nowadays we have mortality that would vary between 0.5 and 
for thoracoabdominal abdominal aneurysm repair compared to 5 to 7% with open repair in a much older and sicker population for the endovascular group. Uh, our major adverse events, uh, including myocardial infarction, uh, need for respiratory failure and need for the ventilator for over 72 hours, spinal cord ischemia, which is obviously the main concern, combined with mortality and acute kidney injury going on dialysis, has been around the 15 to 20%, again, in our hands and in the hands of most of the experienced operators are there, out there. And these are all. This will be probably in the order of 40 to 50 percent with the with the open repair series. So there is no question that on the perioperative period we we have we have surpassed that, and that's the new benchmark for comparison. The long-term durability remains an issue, and will will be always the I would say the Achilles heel of the technique. So about 30 to 40 percent of these patients will develop an endo leak. Either they will have an endoleak, there will be a primary endoleak immediately postoperatively that you will follow and continue to see with the follow-up imaging, or they will develop endoleaks down the road. Now, these endoleaks have several different types, and I, I don't think we need to go into all those types of endoleaks, but there are certain types in which a reintervention is almost mandatory and very, very much recommended because those are high-pressure endoleaks that will cause the aneurysm to continue to expand and potentially rupture. This leads to reinterventions, of course, and the number of reinterventions within three to five years, which is really the most of our series are within the three to five year long-term outcome, which is still not as much as we have with open surgery, given the open surgery has been the time-honored treatment since the 1970s. But that's about the 30%, I would say 25 to 30% of patients will require reinterventions. The main outcome that we want to avoid, of course, is aortic-related mortality a patient that dies of an aneurysm rupture after the aneurysm has been repaired, for instance, or a patient who died of an aneurysm-related death in the perioperative period. That number is in the 3 to 4% of the population. So ultimately, ultimately still probably the curves, there are no direct comparisons with torco-abdominal aneurysms, but probably the, the curves would continue to converge with time. So for those patients who have quite a bit of longevity, of course, in which some of them we include the ones with the genetically triggered diseases, it's very logical that the curves will eventually converge. There is more and more research now to try to improve and try to optimize this durability, stent graft design, what type of stent we're going to use as a bridge for the visceral vessels, what is really the ideal follow-up regimen, how often should we see these patients, is it six every six months, is it every year? All of those things are kind of open, which which is a very fertile soil for research, thankfully. But I think the durability overall has been improving. We have our understanding of it has been improving, but it's certainly not as good as it will be eventually. I mean, I think it's really important for people to understand that, and, and thanks for uh, outlining that. But I, uh, I sense that you're, we, we can expect to see uh, advancements and improvements in the future. And uh, so maybe just to finish up here, um, you know, maybe, just, maybe just got a minute here. You mentioned you know, the, the arch, the aortic arch, and, and I'm assuming that's where sort of, uh, a lot of the challenges remain. And, and I think for the purpose of this discussion, we're, we're not talking about the, uh, the ascending aorta at the moment. That's very much sort of open uh, repair, uh, yes. at least for today. 
but um, maybe could you just give us a very brief glimpse of uh, what's uh, happening in terms of uh, repairs involving the aortic arch. And obviously we talk about the great vessel protection. Absolutely. So the aortic arch is really what we call the, our final frontier. I, perhaps the final frontier will be the valve and the ascending and the coronaries, of course, but the arch, the experience is increasing, particularly in Europe where they have access to all these devices because we're still a number of the arch devices, the devices that are that are designed for a total endovascular arch repair are still not available, widely available in the United States. They are available through some investigational device exemption protocols. But in Europe, this experience is increasing with some of the, some of the most experienced operators, which I, I had the pleasure to visit in the last few years, uh, have over 150 of those operations, total arch repairs, each of them. So it, it's, really, it's really growing. What we have in the United States, to, it's first of all, talking about devices, what we have approved in the United States currently is a single retrograde branch device by W.L. Gore called the thoracic branch endograft, which is designed specific and approved specifically for zone two repair, mainly a repair that starts at the level of the left carotid artery, left common carotid artery, and has a retrograde branch for the left subclavian artery in, to, in order to perform a repair of the zone two of the aorta without having to perform any cervical debranching, meaning carotid subclavian bypass. The results of that device have been encouraging. It has been FDA approved. We are using it frequently. We're expanding its indications, using it for other pathology, not only aneurysm, but dissection, a few coarctation cases here at Mayo Clinic, but that's off IFU. And then if you keep going proximally in the arch, you start to run into a little bit more challenge, of course, because you have to incorporate additional vessels, they nominate the left common carotid artery. Therefore, the risk of stroke increases. The risk of retrograde dissection, which I mentioned before, it's present. So the ideal patient, the ideal patient is a patient who has an ascending prosthetic graft. They had a replacement for any reason, either a dissection or an ascending, a root replacement for an aneurysm. You need to have a in, in whom you have a proximal landing zone for that stent graft to incorporate the, the superiotic trunks. Mm -hmm. Other challenges include the mechanical valves. Patients who have a mechanical valve, you usually would have to cross that with a wire and potentially even with a nose cone of, the, of a device, which can be very traumatic and in, in general is, a, is an exclusion criteria for these cases. And everything in the arch is a little different. The, the morphology of the arch is different. The motility of the arch is different. The dynamic forces and the pressure in there is very different. So I think we still have a lot to learn for arches. I think those cases are very stressful. Every time I have a, a, a case that I'm getting closer to the, closer to the, the closer I get to the aortic valve, of course, the more nerve wracking the case is, the risk of stroke obviously goes, goes up quite a bit. And we have to remember that the results of open repair, frozen elephant trunk, total arch repair are excellent in the right hand. So really, this technology will need to improve a lot and, be, uh, and our experience needs to increase tremendously for us to hit that benchmark so that we can start to compare ourselves. But I think it's a matter of time. It will continue to improve. And eventually, institutions like Mayo and others We'll have to have expertise in both open and endovascular so that we can really use whichever is the best option for each patient because there will be always a role for open surgery. And that's the same for toracoabdominal aneurysms. So, well, I, th I think we should probably uh, stop here just to remind uh, our listeners, uh, you're listening to uh, Dr. Mendes uh, 
vascular and endovascular surgeon here at Mayo. This is a very complex area, and you're giving us, uh, I think, a real sense for how uh, complicated it is in, in the arch as you're getting closer and closer to the aortic valve, as you said. And I, I think I would really like to have you back on the program, and we can maybe uh, just you know talk about that in, in more detail. And that, that is exciting, and to hear that you're getting closer and closer to that. Uh, so I very much appreciate you spending the time with us uh, today, uh, Bernardo. And uh, as I said, uh, love to have you uh, on the program again uh, in the future uh, to expand on some of the things we brought up today. And maybe even just talk about you know the open versus uh, endovascular approaches and, uh, and particularly in those emergency cases and in selected patients. So thank you so much. And, uh, and thank uh, all of our uh, listeners today for, for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Dr. Bell. It was a pleasure and I look forward to coming back. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.